0: Good morning, everyone, for what I'm not even going to pretend is going to be a quiet week in Westminster. We are delighted to have Tony Blair here speaking on, um, we always knew it was going to be a busy day, the day before Parliament got back. We didn't anticipate quite how many things there might be to talk about. He is going to uh, talk um, a speech called Country Before Tribe. Not just about the events uh, coming up this week, but indeed what Brexit and what these kind of questions are doing to the UK, to the Union, to our politics, to Parliament. I don't want to um, uh, take away any more lines from you, so with that, very, very warm welcome. and We look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Brahman, and thank you to the Institute for Government in inviting me along this morning. It's a great pleasure to see everyone. Um, I normally, with with a, a speech like this, try and think of a few, a few jokes to uh, kind of loosen everyone up, but I think Brexit's now gone beyond a joke, frankly, so there you go. Um, and I'll crash straight into, into the speech. In the modern history of Britain, there's never been a more important moment for politicians to put country before tribe and national interest before self-interest. We're numb to the state of our politics. What is happening is shocking, irresponsible and dangerous. Our government is ripping Britain out of the European Union by common acceptance, the most important change in this country's affairs since 1945, in the most extreme form of Brexit imaginable, without an agreement to replace the complicated network of political and commercial arrangements we have built over decades of European membership. And it's doing so without the consent of Parliament, but with a deliberate manoeuvre to curtail it, and without the express consent of the British people, relying instead on a one-off plebiscite, now over three years ago, in which not for one moment was it suggested by those advocating Brexit that no deal would be the outcome. Parliament, the capstone of our democracy, is held up to ridicule as the enemy of the very people who elected it. Not once have our nation's leadership explained to the public why Brexit's been so difficult to resolve, which is because there are at least three different versions of it, hard, soft, and no deal, and all are vastly different in their implications. Rather, it has suited them to ride a wave of just do it, emotion, born of public impatience. You're bored of Brexit. I'm bored of Brexit. Right, We all are, but no serious political leader would suggest that we should take a decision of this magnitude by an affliction of patience. The obvious way to resolve Brexit was by setting out the different forms of it, making Parliament choose, and if they can't, asking the people to have the final say. This has never been tried by government in a structured way and is now dismissed as a ploy of obstruction when it remains the only plan of reason. So we are poised to leave Europe on the 31st of October with no deal and no idea, frankly, of what it really means. Difficult, damaging or disastrous. But many believe it will be a disaster not only economically, but in areas like security. And I ask, does no one presently in government, particularly those cabinet members who used to protest against the irresponsibility of such a course, understand the consequence of doing this in circumstances where a large part of the country will regard this outcome as illegitimate? Democracy depends on a shared sense of legitimacy in decision-making. Legitimacy is not the same as agreement with government. Governments do things people dislike. But outside of the political fringes, most people accept their right to do them. This is now a crisis of legitimacy. Yet no one in government even pretends to address these anxieties. And we're a riven nation. One part of the people is enraged Brexit is being thwarted, the other enraged by the manner it is being done. Each side accuses the other of being anti-democratic, of deception and destruction of faith in politics. People versus parliament, parliament versus government, people versus people. Elements threaten to take to the street, never a good way to decide anything. Brexit has become so bitter, in my view, because Brexit is not simply about a decision to leave the EU. It is about culture, identity, values, and generation. The essence is not about trade. It is about who we are as a nation in the 21st century. Normally, questions of identity play out over time, by evolution, or by staggered points of development in successive elections, But the holding of the referendum turned this into a moment of revolution. It forced us to confront a division, perhaps better unconfronted. On the one side are those who feel Britain as they know it is being cast aside. The things they like about Britain disappearing and in their place. Petty political correctness, bureaucratic obsessions magnified and exemplified by Europe and above all, obedience to the god of multiculturalism at the expense of our own culture. This part of Britain imagines a parallel with the Second World War, a period of our history which rightly makes us proud. You read the speeches of the Brexiteers and they're replete with references to this feat of glory. But it casts a long shadow over the British psyche, it creates a longing to live the moment again, to see each new circumstance through the lens of its narrative, a life and death struggle between us and those who would harm us, where against all odds we triumph, a series of darkest hours from which we emerge to the sunlit uplands. Those of us on the other side think if there is a parallel with World War II, it's the need to stand firm, when you're doing what you believe to be right for the country, even when it's unpopular. We look at Europe today and see 70 years of peace and relative stability. We see this crisis as one visited upon ourselves by ourselves, a folly of nostalgia. We celebrate our cultural diversity. We revere but don't dwell on Britain's past or see it as the only point of reference for our future. We're comfortable, with a secondary European identity, alongside our primary British one. This profound cultural difference was also part of what we were deciding in June 2016. It's a big decision to take on one day and one vote. Since Boris Johnson has become Prime Minister, everything has changed and nothing has changed. The mood has changed radically. He has energy and strategy to cajole Tory MPs into not tying his hands because a deal with Europe is possible, to cajole Europe by the threat he's serious about no deal, and if both fail, to blame Parliament and the EU for their intransigence. Our government has been taken over by a gang of adventurers, but don't underestimate the appeal of adventure after a long period of paralysis. The contrast with Theresa May is stark. And many are prepared, like him, to believe that with belief, it can be done. It will end. The word Brexit will vanish into history. We can get on with our lives. So their strategy has been to go at it full tilt, whipped on by the Brexit press and a vibrant social media campaign, buoyed by the weakness of the opposition, the spending pledges rolling off the conveyor belt, as if it is only Brexit which has liberated us from austerity, posing as the saviours of the people, ready to steamroller over the recalcitrant, out-of-touch elite. However, this public sentiment, like the entire Johnson Premiership, is based on an illusion, a national example of what we all know from our personal life lessons, which is that decisions based on fatigue and desperation are usually wrong, And that belief can give you the courage to take a risk, but it cannot alter the objective facts as to what the risk is. This is where nothing has changed. The long-term impact of the Brexit decision is unaltered. The political consequence of Brexit is to diminish us globally. Within a relatively short space of time, the world will evolve into a combination of giant powers and regional blocs. The giants will be the USA, China, and probably India. The blocs will come together to achieve collectively what it is impossible to achieve individually, to sit at the top table of geopolitics on equal terms. This is the modern rationale for Europe, not peace, but power. And in time, in Southeast Asia, ASEAN. In South America, Mercosur. In Central Asia, the bloc formed around Russia, the Africa Union. Britain should retain its strong and special relationship with the United States. But its natural place is with Europe. For reasons of history, culture, commerce, values, and of course geography. It's quicker now to go by train to Paris than Newcastle. The economics of Brexit have not changed. We exit our largest trading market and the largest commercial market in the world in a manner no modern developed country has contemplated, let alone done before. Brexit is based on a colossal myth that Europe controls our laws. In fact, virtually any decision that affects the practical life of British people is decided not in Brussels, but here in Britain. The NHS, education, crime, taxes, welfare, pensions, defence, even on immigration other than freedom of movement within Europe, Britain decides British immigration policy. So the Brexiteers were driven to construct their case around the area where, as the settled policy of successive governments, we have indeed pooled our lawmaking. That's the single market and the customs union. Every time Brexiteers are challenged on specifically why it is so important to our identity to exit Europe, they're then obliged to resort to bizarre examples, as with Boris Johnson and truck windows, if you remember, when resigning as foreign secretary, Kipper rapping when fighting to be Tory leader, and Melton Mowbray port pies when advocating for the supremacy of American trade deals. These would be trivial, even if true. And as it turns out, they're both trivial and untrue. But as a result, we are torn between the self-evident truth that exiting such a relationship is bound to be painful and the necessity of satisfying the Brexiteer myth that we must exit to preserve British identity. Thus, we ended up with the unobtainable cake and eat it strategy. And then we have the added dimension of the Irish border where naturally the accepted need to keep the border open conflicts with the fact that for the first time, Ireland and the UK will not be in the same economic or political status, vis-à-vis Europe. The backstop is merely the expression of this dilemma, because Brexit is really a choice, not a negotiation. If we want out of the single market and customs union, fine, but then we'll have a hard border. If we want an open border, we stay connected to the European system. The latest attempt at a negotiation, as far as we know it, simply underscores this. The new Prime Minister is apparently offering Europe regulatory alignment in certain areas, which will mean effectively abiding by Europe's rules overseen by the ECJ. This is a slimmer version of the May deal presented at Chequers, which he resigned over. He may succeed in this negotiation, but I doubt it. Because ultimately, Europe may change the form of the concept behind the backstop, but not the concept itself in which case we bump up against something else which hasn't changed, the impact of no deal. No amount of self-belief can alter its reality. No deal is presented also as the end of Brexit. On the contrary, it's not the end. It's a fresh beginning, because then we will be obliged to negotiate with Europe a new trade deal, though with little or no negotiating leverage. And of course, Europe wants to avoid no deal and the Irish particularly will be badly damaged by it. Something of which we should be ashamed given all the extraordinary efforts of so many to lay to rest the ghosts of the often savage past between British and Irish. But the principal damage will be to ourselves and we misunderstand European politics. Brexit is our daily news curse but not theirs. Germany has its own problems France and Italy theirs. It's vexing for them. It's paramount for us. So this is a reckless path. But there is a strategy behind it. And we must be equally strategic in opposing it. And we cannot let the big arguments be lost in the minutiae of parliamentary process, particularly this week. First, we must constantly debunk the notion that the June 2016 referendum is a mandate for a no-deal Brexit. Feeble attempts to suggest it is have founded on the overwhelming evidence that on the contrary, Brexiteers continually stated there would be a deal and that it would be easy. Second, therefore, if the government policy is to come out with no deal, then the mandate to do it should come either from Parliament or the people. Third, and this is the crux. If Parliament cannot agree, then the right way to consult the people is not through a general election, but through a referendum. That means as MPs from different parties have agreed that there should not be a motion of no confidence, but rather legislation preventing no deal, should the government seek an election, it should be refused in favor of a referendum. Now I know it's counterintuitive for opposition parties to refuse an election, But in this exceptional case, it's vital they do so as a matter of principle until Brexit is resolved. Brexit is an issue which stands on its own, was originally decided on its own, and should be reconsidered on its own. The Brexiteers are laying a trap to seem as if pushed into an election whilst actively preparing for one. And they do this because they know there are two issues in British politics, not one, and we should be frank about it. One is Brexit, the other is the Corbyn leadership. It is the interplay between these two issues that has really shaped and defined British politics over the past three to four years. Boris Johnson knows that if no-deal Brexit stands on its own as a proposition, it might well fail. But if he mixes it up with the Brexit question, and the Corbyn question together in a general election. He could succeed, despite a majority being against a no-deal Brexit, because some may fear a Corbyn premiership more. The Labour leader could be similarly tempted. Without Brexit, winning an election is hard, but with it in the mix, especially as no deal, he may gain support from people who otherwise would not entertain his premiership. In backing away from the idea of himself as a caretaker prime minister, Jeremy Corbyn has behaved responsibly and if he continues to put country first, he will benefit the country and himself. He can now play a decisive role in how Brexit develops. But he should see an election before Brexit is decided for the elephant trap that it is. After Brexit is resolved, an immediate election is right and necessary And if Labour approaches the resolution of Brexit with the spirit of strategic cooperation it has shown recently, it will emerge with its standing and even that of its leadership greatly enhanced. So if the government tries to force an election now, Labour should vote against it. The challenge of such an election is brutally clear. And leave aside for a moment what's fair and unfair. No opposition leader or party with these poll ratings has won an election. The 2017 result has inoculated the Labour Party against a realistic assessment of where it stands. To be sure, an election is a risk for the Tories. Each Tory candidate will have to sign up to no deal. The Brexit party is a one-man, unpredictable band. Scotland will be very tough for them but my bet is the Brexit party will collapse them. The Labour party at present will struggle. A resurgent Lib Dems will do well, but not well enough to govern. The opposition vote, therefore, is gonna split. And under our system, that delivers a comfortable Tory majority. When you get to real world politics, this will be presented as do you want Boris Johnson delivering Brexit plus a populist Tory programme Or do you want to turn the country, its economy, and security over to Jeremy Corbyn and his small group of acolytes from the far left? The parliamentary tactics are clear, seize the agenda, but the strategic goal must be that if it is the people who are called upon to break the deadlock, they should be asked to do so directly on the specific issue, not an election to choose a government. So, should it come to an election, then we would be obliged to try to replicate that well-orchestrated cooperation which has been so remarkable in Parliament across tribal boundaries, but in the much more complicated setting of an election, in order to mobilise the potential majority in the country against no deal. There's a will to do this, but the way is dense with obstacles. But we would have to try. In conclusion, return to what is at stake Brexit is the answer to none of Britain's challenges. Consider all the announcements Boris Johnson is making. Not one of them depends on Britain leaving the EU. Brexit is a gigantic distraction. It will cause slow but significant damage to our economy. It is a self-inflicted diminution of our geopolitical relevance. It is opposed by the overwhelming majority of the younger generation who nonetheless will live with its consequences. And no deal Brexit poses a genuine threat to the union of the United Kingdom. This is a time of genuine national peril. To their credit, many politicians across all parties have been willing to put aside normal politics to meet this abnormal challenge in these abnormal times. They should stay on this path, an intelligent, and rational way to Brexit resolution can still be found. But my point this morning is that it requires, as ever in politics, the alliance, the principle with strategy. Thank
0: you, Penny Blair, thank you very much indeed. You've talked about a crisis of legitimacy. Do you think the way the government is behaving in the moment towards parliament makes it illegitimate?
1: Um, yes, I think it's one of the, the factors alongside the fact that I just don't think you can argue that June 2016 was at least a clear mandate for no deal. So as a result of that, the, the problem that you've got is that supp- supposing we, we crash out on the 31st of October with no deal because parliament has been circumvented there's been no reference back to the people, I think a large part of the country will think this is not a legitimate way to have decided this. And if, by the way, even a part of the warnings over no deal, including by the government, or internal to the government, turn out to be right, I think you'll have an enormous amount of anger in the country. So yes, I think this is one aspect which undermines the legitimacy, because in the end, if the government has a policy of no deal exit, then of course it should put it to
0: Parliament. And if Parliament rejects it, it'll have to decide how to resolve it. What do you you say to the argument, though, that Parliament has had quite a lot of goes at this and has not covered itself in glory? MPs did sign on to uh, Article 50. They voted for that. They voted for the Withdrawal Act uh, last year. They uh, woke up, uh, I, uh, I think we would argue at the IFG, quite late to the sheer difficulties that they would face in trying to stop no deal. And, and that's been the, the, the story of this summer. Yeah, I and mean,
1: you often hear this from government ministers. There was one, I can't remember, who was on the TV the other day saying, yeah, but they've had three years, they've been debating it every day. Why do they need more time to debate it? Well, they have debated No Deal, and they've come out by a large majority against it. So they can't say the policy they're, they're, they're now putting forward is a policy that's been expressly rejected by Parliament. On that, by the way, on No Deal, there's no doubt where Parliament stands at the moment. But the second thing is this, and this is the real problem with the whole Brexit business. At the very beginning, what the government should have done, this is going back to autumn of 2016, is it should have set out the Brexit options. Because there are different options, that's why it's been difficult for Parliament mm-hmm. to resolve it. You can have a soft Brexit, you stay connected to the European economic system, you out of the political mm-hmm. system. You can have a hard Brexit, which is you come out of the economic and the political arrangements of the EU, but you do so as a result of a deal and you go to a Canada-style free trade agreement. Or the third option is you just say, we're going out, we're going to... You know, we're crashing out without a deal, without an, an you agreement. You could lay
0: all those things out, but Parliament has not come out or managed to coalesce for any option a, a right. at all.
1: So well, how do you resolve the, de- the deadlock? And this is why I always say to people about a referendum, because, you know, I'm not, I'm not sort of ignorant of the, the sense that many, many people have in the country that the last thing they want is to go back and have another referendum. But I keep saying to people, you've got to... The, you get to a referendum when you exhaust all the other options. And the fact is, what should have happened is the government should have set out in a structured way, you can have soft Brexit, hard Brexit, no deal Brexit, and they should have asked Parliament to decide. And they never did. And they never did because they, they have always wanted... For political reasons, the whole thing has been governed by the politics of the Conservative Party. It's never been governed by a rational analysis of what's really going on. So why did Theresa May trigger Article 50? Which, when you look back on it, was a crazy thing to do at the time, right? Why did she do it? Because the politics of the Tory party meant she had to prove her Brexit credentials. Why did she say coming out of the single market and customs union when no one was giving any consideration of how that then lay with your with your agreed obligation to keep the Irish border open because of the politics. And why is Boris Johnson now going for no deal, even though, frankly, during the course of the referendum campaign, he was saying, of course there won't be no deal, there will be a deal and it's relatively easy, because of the politics of the Tory party. So the reason we're in this situation, the people are being told all the time that it's because these people are just obstructing you in parliament, but in the end, the reason it's been difficult to resolve is you've never had that structured set of options put with Parliament coming to make but a surely, decision. Surely and if they can't is, make a decision, then yeah. you go back to the people.
0: Surely is wishing for some ideal, which is just, at least at this point, not going to happen. Nor does there seem a lot of support in Parliament for what you're arguing for, which is a second referendum. There'd be a lot more excitement about the idea of general election. What's wrong with a general election as a way of going back to the people, a more traditional way of going back to the people, and asking them uh, what they think?
1: What's wrong with it is precisely the argument I've mm. just given, which is you mix it up with other issues, mm. and you're going back to the people for a specific reason, right? Which is Brexit, and if you're going back to the people with a, on a specific issue, you go back and ask them about the issue, because I mean let's be let's be absolutely clear: the reason why the Brexiteers think a general election may be in their interests, I mean, for all their problems. It's because they can mix it up with the the Jeremy Corbyn issue. And that's Mm. irresponsible. I've had lots of criticism of Jeremy Corbyn, obviously and my position in relation to his politics is well known. But leave aside whether I'm right or I'm wrong, it's fair or it's unfair. If you're looking at this and you're a Tory strategist, you're thinking, you know, the one way we might get this over the line and be able to argue it's legitimate is if we go back and and call a general election. But it's not legitimate because you will be securing the support of people across the range of issues you decide in an election, particularly when the alternative Prime Minister is someone who's offering a very radically different politics, you're gonna mix it all up together when actually if Brexit is the question, decide it as the question, which we did, by the way, in the original referendum. And why do the Tories not want to go back to the people with a referendum?
0: Because they think they might lose it. And Labour hasn't rushed, you might say, to, Embrace the idea of another referma- no, referendum, and, and is and is <laughs> and is pushing for a general election. Yeah, You've complimented Jeremy Corbyn, sort of, in uh, in saying that he, he backtracked from uh, the idea of himself as a caretaker prime minister, and you said put you know uh, country before uh, par- party interest. Surely he just didn't get the, the votes. He didn't get the support in the comments that he yeah, would have allowed him he's to. He's got do to that. make the
1: same calculation now about an election, mm-hmm. and he's got to say if you if you if the priority for the country is stopping a no-deal Brexit and creating the circumstances where you get a rational resolution of Brexit, then you've got to accept that a general election is a risk. I mean, let's even accept that I... You know, what I'm saying, which is, you know, the Tories have... You know, can obviously see that it's possible for them to win a general election by making the issue Johnson versus Corbyn. But even leave aside that, it's an incredibly risky thing to bet the future of the country. And all the way through, what, what, the, the problem in this whole business is that Brexit is an issue for generations to come. Right? I don't, by the way, believe this idea that if we exit, you know, in a few years' time, we'll be getting back in. It won't, it won't happen like that. If we exit, we will be driven inexorably to be a competitor with Europe. Our relationship with Europe, in my view, will not be very cooperative. It'll be very scratchy especially, by the way, if you do no deal, and then you try to negotiate a whole set of new trading relations.
0: Mm. We'll come on to those in a moment. But you said it's conceivable that, that uh, Boris Johnson and the Conservatives could, uh, could win an election. Is it conceivable to you that Labour could win a general election soon? It's conceivable, but you've got to look at the polling.
1: I mean, where's, where's Labour in the latest polls? In somewhere in the 20s? When I was leader of the opposition if we'd been pulling in the 20s, I'd have had a few people knocking at my door uh, and not wanting to have a very polite conversation. So I don't... I mean, we've got to be realistic about this. You know, and in our electoral system, that's the other mm-hmm. point. In our electoral system, if it's a three-way split, then if you, if you fight a general election on Brexit, if I'm right that the Brexit party in the end, if the Tories are fighting a no-deal election campaign, I cannot believe they're going to be standing candidates against Tories. I think that's highly unlikely. And what's that Brexit vote in the population? It's probably 40% or roundabouts, right? So if your opposition vote is then split, your opposition vote combined might be more. Your opposition vote in a different electoral system, and leave aside whether it's right or wrong, it's the system we've got, in an electoral system that was worked by percentages, that would be fine. But in this case, it won't be. It'll be first past the post in constituencies. You go back just analyse the 1980s, which is the last time you had such a thing. The result was clear each time. But there is a point of principle. It's not just about electoral strategy. The point of principle is, if the people are asked to break the deadlock, they should be asked on the question that has caused the deadlock.
0: But it seems more likely at this point that we're going to have a general election. Would you vote for Labour in it?
1: Yeah, it's a really difficult question because of the struggle I have with other aspects of Labour policy. But I you would mean be the anti-Semitism. But right? I would be yeah, and all of that. I mean look, there's a huge problem within the Labour Party. Mm. I personally believe so strongly on Brexit, I'd do virtually anything to stop it. Right. But
0: including vote for Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, Corbin.
1: Including that. I would certainly You're I would saying consider it vir-
0: virtually <laughs> virtually anything. No, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a yeah. problem, isn't it? I mean that yeah. the, the dilemma yeah. I'm expressing to you very honestly is the dilemma a lot of people will be faced with. Care, they care passionately about Brexit. They're gonna ask in the election what's the best way of stopping it. But on the other hand, you know, it's no great secret, many people like myself have real anxieties about parts of the program. You, know, you look at the Financial Times again this morning and you can see that what the problems are going to be. It's exactly why it shouldn't be a general election. But leave aside whether I do that or even your Ken Clarks of this world might be prepared to support him as Prime Minister in these circumstances
0: the the fact, Alistair Campbells have left.
1: Well, uh, you know, th- they'd have to, th- th- people like Alistair would then have to decide what, what's the best way of stopping Brexit. But my point is this, it doesn't matter what we think. I meet people the whole time who say to me, look, I agree with you on Brexit, but if you guys f- have an election and it's Boris Johnson versus Jeremy Corbyn, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going with Boris Johnson. And I, I meet people like that the whole time so you, you can't, if you're in serious politics you can't just ignore that and say it doesn't exist because it does exist mm. so I go back to the point that as a matter of principle a referendum is the right way and as a matter of strategy it's the right way and the reason why at the moment people balk at the idea of going back to the people in a referendum is they quite rightly say look it's divisive It's suboptimal, it's going to be difficult, you know, people are going to say, well, we've already stated what we want, and now you're going back to us again. I agree with all of that, but what are the alternatives? I've just said, go out with no deal. Do you think there's not going to be protest and anger of that? And if, for example, those in Parliament do legislate against no deal and for an extension, in the end, they're going to have to provide a a path to resolution, you know, the, you can't just ask for an extension and say, like, right, let's have another extension and then another and another, because that will drive the public crazy. <laughs> the only thing that will work is if you say, we need an extension because here is a structured plan for the resolution of this issue. And that's why it's, it's literally the old Sherlock Holmes dictum, which is when you eliminate all the other possibilities, no matter how probable, what you're left with is the solution, <laughs> or something like that.
0: Yes, but it sounds like you want some technocrat to come down from the sky, and even though we at the IFG often uh, suggest that kind of solution, no one is is arguing for this kind of rational laying out of options. Well, they're arguing for a set of
1: different things. There are people arguing for referendums. There are people arguing to legislate against no deal. There are people (laughs) arguing for a resolution. What I'm saying is, if you've got a better plan, tell me. But I don't see what the better plan is. No deal's a bad plan. An extension open-ended for no reason is... Going to be frankly going to be difficult.
0: You mentioned first past the post. Do you think we need an alternative to that now? If we're, if we're going to start talking about innovations, we saw Change UK get really not off the ground at all. Uh, is that something that you would back? Look,
1: I, think, I think there's a, there's a, there's a case for it if our politics remains split amongst different parties mm. as it is now, but frankly it's a pretty redundant argument since you're not going to get a change in the electoral system before any staff election. Yes. So, you know, maybe it's right, maybe it's not right. But right now, it's not relevant.
0: Do we need a codified constitution? We've had people improvising The problem things is, for is, the past this year. This is an argument I, I had
1: with a lot of people in government over, over the years. When people, I think there is a case, I mean, I'm not particularly convinced in myself, but there is obviously a case for a written constitution and so on. But in the end, these constitutional changes don't relieve you of the, the politics of the situation. And in the end, the thing that, again, it doesn't matter whether a written constitution might be a good idea in the future or not. We don't have it now. And what we've got is a very clear, basic, brutal political choice. And what I'm arguing for today is because it's in the Labour Party's hands, this. The Labour Party says, no, we're we're not, yes, we need a general election, but not before Brexit's resolved. The Labour Party will get its way. Because if they try and call an election... Supposing they try and legislate for no deal, it looks like the government's hands are going to be tied and the government then calls for a general election. Labour should say no, not until Brexit's resolved.
0: And and that is really what's at stake this week. It
1: is what's at stake this week. Because I keep saying to people, yes, you can legislate for no deal. But what happens if the Tories then say, OK, well, in that case, we'll have an election? At that point, you've got to say no. If you're going to decide this, you're going to break the deadlock by going back to the people... Break it directly, go back to the people on the issue of Brexit. And don't present people with a situation where even though they're opposed to no deal, they feel for reasons completely extraneous and different from the politics of Brexit that they've got to vote this way or that way.
0: You mentioned trade. Let me just ask you uh, briefly, um, the trade deals that we have to strike with other countries, obviously with the EU, but with other countries as well. The US has been very friendly in the past few weeks. How, from your experience of dealing with the US, would you suggest a British Prime Minister goes into those negotiations? Well, you know, there'll
1: be a lot of goodwill, particularly from the Trump White House towards Boris Johnson, and there will be goodwill generally from the United States to Britain. But anyone who's ever dealt with trade deals knows that the goodwill is what creates the sort of fluffy atmosphere. But then there's years of hard negotiation where interests pop up. And Congress in the end, by the way, decides what the... The final position in relation to America. So these are notoriously difficult things to do, and we're doing it. What, what I can't understand is why people think Britain on its own gets a better trade deal than with the whole power of the European market behind us.
0: It just makes no sense to me. Are we going to have a choice though between being close to the US and being close to the EU?
1: Yes, um, that that we, we will inevitably, if we Brexit, we'll get closer to America, but. You know, I'm a passionate believer in the transatlantic alliance, as people know. But I also know, if you look at the relationship just as a bilateral relationship, it's not a relationship of equals, just for reasons. Again, one of the things that's weird about this debate is the way people seem to think that self-belief can overcome reality. You know, it's not when you say it's unequal between the United States and Britain. It's not. It's not like you know. It's not like you're saying Britain's not a good country. It's like saying, you know, if Manchester City of playing Port Vale, they're likely to win. I mean, it's not... You know, not, we're, not, we're not Port Vale. We're, OK, um, we're, we're more like maybe... Uh, LAUGHTER <laughs> uh, Maybe Newcastle, right? But, uh, you know, we're a premiership side, OK? But we're not... It's still going to be unequal over a period of time. It's an unequal relationship in that way. And there's no... There's, there's nothing that's wrong with saying, you know, you, you're, you're, as a result of this, you're best to be part of your blog. And that's why the world's evolving into these blogs. You, know, you can see it everywhere you go in the world. They're doing it for a very simple reason. When the giants take their position in the middle of this century, and it will be America, China, probably India, for reasons of population and for reasons of the sheer weight and size of America militarily and economically. It's an unequal... Everyone else is either a tall country or a medium-sized country. And if you want, if the medium-sized don't want to be sat upon by the giants, they've got to band together. Mm-hmm. That's the reason for Europe. That's the reason why all these blocks are happening. Why do you think ASEAN's created in the Southeast Asia? As you, as you will know, it's created because they can see the power of China. So countries like the Philippines and Indonesia and Vietnam realise that today they're going to have to cooperate if they're going to hold their own. And so my... Worry about Brexit has always been, yes, it's going to be economically damaging in my view. But long term, the damage is is actually political as well as economic. It's going to diminish our relevance, and people who think that it isn't are just, you know, they're just not looking at the world. Right, so let
0: me just ask you finally before we go to questions. You go you go around the world talking to a lot of other governments, heads of government of the Global Institute, and. Then. Uh, in other ways. Uh, how do you explain to other countries how uh, a stable old democracy has begun to unravel in about three years?
1: Yeah, it's pretty difficult actually. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I turned up a few months back in one of the poorest African countries in the world and the first thing the president did was say, I'm so sorry for you. <laughs> um, which is, uh, look, what I say to people is we'll get through it in the end. We are a great country, we're a great people, we'll come through it. Um, and, and we will, you know, in the end, if, if Brexit happens, we're going to have to make the best of it. Um, but it's best with a decision of this magnitude and after this mess that it's taken after people have said, okay, do you, you want to tell them again or do you want to think again? That's my, my point. It's not unreasonable uh, given all the stuff that's happened. You know, I find it uh, un- unbelievable that people say it's undemocratic in these circumstances to go back and say, okay, You've now got three years of experience. You've seen what's happening. We're now faced with the most extreme form of Brexit. Do you want it or do you not want it? I mean, the idea is... It's not like we're asking some other people. You know, we're asking the British people. And that's why I think that even though there would be protests about holding another referendum, it's hard for those protests to get off the ground, ultimately, because we're asking them so So they can Think again
0: versus tell them again. I'm not sure that's a winning... Slogan, but, we well, but, it, but it's the reality, yeah. isn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, what, what
0: it, the,
1: I always say to people about these political questions is: don't overcomplicate them. Ultimately, that's what we're saying. We're saying because there are there are people like me, we're the the thirty to thirty five percent who are always going to be Remain. There's nothing that's going to convince us it's sensible to leave the European Union. And then you've got the thirty to thirty five percent who want Brexit. You, you see this sometimes. we, we see this in the in the detailed work that's done on, on Brexit, there are people who say, yeah, no, I want Brexit. It's economically damaging, I still want it. It's gonna damage future generations, I still want it. Right. They want it, for whatever reasons, we can agree or disagree. Right. So as ever in politics, it's gonna be about the bit in the middle, it's the third in the middle. And right now, they just want the agony to end, right? And the question is, what is the most persuasive argument with them? And it will be on the Brexit side, just get it done because we should do and we said we would do it so you just got to do it and on our side it'll be it's a massive distraction from the problems of the country and if you go forward with Brexit on a no deal basis you're going to continue arguing about Brexit for many years to come and that's what the argument will be about Uh, because the those like me and those on the other side who have passionately pro-Brexit then we're never going to change our minds
0: questions first at the back Mm -hmm.
1: Thank you. Uh, Nigel Fletcher, King's College, London. Um, Mr Blair, you you, you made your case for a referendum on the basis of principle and strategy. Can I ask on a point of detail, what would the question be? And given that we have the Parliament that we do at the moment, how could we get to a situation where there would be any agreement on what that question would be? Um, If we can't come to an agreement in any sense on the outcome uh, that Parliament wants to see of Brexit negotiations, how could it agree on a question? Well, I think the questions in in today's circumstances is not hard. It's the government position versus stay. So the government's position is no deal. Hard Brexit negotiated or no deal. I don't think it's that difficult. And, you know, I've always said to people, because one of the arguments people often say to me is, look, have you guys, you Remainers not made the best the enemy of the good by failing to support a kind of soft Brexit alternative? And what I've always said to that is there's no point in doing soft Brexit because the Brexiteers will claim it's a betrayal. And the one thing that's absolutely pointless is to do a Brexit that the people advocating Brexit don't like and the people opposed to Brexit don't like either. So in the end, I, I don't think the question's that hard. The question's what, whatever is the government policy versus the alternative, which is
0: staying. Great. Second row here. Jake Sumner, Sierra Labour's environment campaign. Um, no deal doesn't make sense, but I suppose it only makes sense if you don't want a relationship with the European Union, and all the and, and all the problems that arise from that. No relationships, trade, and etc. Why don't you think this comes out more in uh, interviews with Conservative politicians and Brexiteers on the real implications of No Deal, and it's a terrible position for the uh, United Kingdom to be in?
1: Because I think it just you know they they. Um they continue with this fantasy that wrenching us out of Europe is going to be very cooperative with the rest of Europe in the medium and long term. And I just think they're wrong about it. But they've got to say it because it's so obvious. I mean, because that's the dilemma at the heart of Brexit. You know, you're exiting the trading relationships that cover half of your trade. So they've got to try and say that it's still going to be a cooperative relationship. But one thing we should really understand, because I find this with every European leader I speak to, one of the things they find most disturbing and irritating about the British position is that we were the people who championed the single market. I mean, back in the 1980s, it was Margaret Thatcher's, uh, I think, industry secretary at the time, Lord Caulfield, that really promoted the concept of the single market. And what we were saying to Europe is, look, rather than some grand political superstate, concentrate on creating one market within Europe, this was, this was the policy of successive British governments to create this single market, to have this customs union and so you can understand the irritation when we now turn around Europe having then been <laughs> essentially pulled into agreeing this and doing it when they, we now turn around and say well, by the way that's the reason we want to leave now and it is one of the really important things when you ask for details from the Brexiteers as to what are the things they want to do with Britain that they can't because of Europe. That's why Boris Johnson keeps tripping up over these examples. Because in the end, you're driven to look at the single market. Because otherwise, it's plain that we've got control. over I mean, look at all the things we've announced. announcing. What have we announced? National Health Service, make the decisions here in Britain. Education, make the decisions here in Britain. Law and order, make the decisions here in Britain. How much we spend on any of those things? We make the decision here. Do we cut taxes? We make the decision here. I mean, The decisions that, that decide the future of Britain are decided in Britain. And that's why the whole Brexit thing, ultimately, is based on classic populist politics. If you've got a problem, something is to blame for that problem. It's not because you're not sorting yourselves out in the right way. It's someone is stopping you. And that's what Brexit's become. Europe's become the scapegoat for challenges that in the end, even if we do Brexit, we're gonna be faced with doing them in this country. It's just that we're doing them in a context that's much more difficult for us.
0: Great, next one. Um, Okay, we've got one one over here at the side. If someone's next door, do they wanna stick their head around? So much. Kate Ferguson from the Sun. Uh, Mr Blair, I wondered how big an a al-
1: liability to Labour's chances at the election do you think Jeremy Corbyn is as a leader? And also do you think Labour should consider going into alliances with other remain parties in certain seats, like the Lib Dems? Well, I think you know, on the Corbyn leadership I've said what I've said. I mean you just you can look at the polling and, and make up your your mind on it, but obviously there's you know, Elohi's got very strong support. Um, he's obviously got significant amounts of the population against him. As to what Labour should do with this general election, well, that is a very tough and difficult question because I think, as I said in my speech, I think you've got to look at ways that you can cooperate across party boundaries, but it's very hard to see how that happens.
0: How it happens or whether it would work? Well, both. uh, Third row here.
1: But it's necessary to look at it. Uh, Thank you. Imran Hussein with the Children's Charity Action for Children. Just a quick question about childhoods and um, uh, life chances for children. So in the first century, uh, first decade, sorry, after the turn of the century, we had uh, uh, governments that were focused on children's life chances, which took over a million kids out of poverty. The second decade, we had austerity, which is, uh, as the IFS is projecting, is going to put over 5 billion children into poverty by 2022. The third decade, if we have... No deal. What's your sense of what's going to happen to children's life think, chances? I think it becomes a lot more difficult because we will... I mean, it's interesting things. First of all, I don't know how many billions we've already spent on, on Brexit, but it's a lot. Um, secondly, if, if you see that Bank of England report, I think, today on productivity, I think it's a Bank of England report today on productivity, which shows our productivity down something like 3 to 5% as a result of Brexit. sounds like a small amount. Actually, it's a large amount, when you think of its implications economically. You know, yeah, we're gonna have less and all, I mean, there's, there's really no disagreement that Brexit is going to reduce GDP, which reduces, you know, has anyone's ever been in government, if your growth rate, basically the sort of macorber type of rule when you're in government is if your growth rates are over 2%, you have quite a good revenue position. If your growth rates dip around 1%, you've got a problem. And if they're below 1%, you've got a big problem. And so yes, it will, it will mean that we don't have the life chances for our kids that, that we should have. And one other thing I think is really important. I am a big believer that if by whatever way we manage to get out of this uh, Brexit morass, we've got to deal with the underlying things that drove it. You know, you've got to have a realistic position on immigration and you've gotta deal with those communities and those people who feel left behind from globalization. And that should be a big part of any program going forward.
0: The IFG does regularly add up what uh, has been spent on Brexit, but it's dwarfed by the things you're talking about, the impact on productivity and investment and the, the, the economic impact. The actual spending, while not small, is um, smaller than that. Right, at the, uh, towards the back. Enormous amount of anger Excuse me, would you like to say who you are, please? Yeah, I'm Adam, so I'm a former European civil servant here, working for your previous government. Enormous amount of anger in the country, no legitimate way to decide. These are words for me from 2003. And so what I would like to ask you is, would, you're not, would your words not be more convincing if you took more responsibility for what you and your government did in 2003 vis-a-vis Iraq?
1: You know, we had a vote in Parliament. I mean, you can agree or disagree with the decision, but we had a vote in Parliament. Yeah, of course we take responsibility, but we had a vote in parliament, and we voted to do what we did as a result of the vote in parliament. So, you know, you can go back to 2003, but I don't think it's really relevant to this.
0: All right, over here.
1: Bruce Lloyd. um, I have a lot of sympathy with your case for a referendum, but the likely outcome is that it's going to be very close. And if it was the case, that the Remain party won the election by a small majority, the Brexit issue isn't going to go away. So how are we going to deal with that?
0: Very good point. You call this a riven country.
1: Yeah, I know. So this is why I say to people, you've got to examine each of the potential outcomes here. Because I do think that a vote, a further vote ultimately will be seen as the most legitimate way. I'm not saying there won't be people who say it's illegitimate, because there will be, <coughs> but it's bound to be a problem for those arguing it's illegitimate if you have the British people deciding again on this issue. And I've suggested before that you actually have an undertaking by both groups that no matter how narrow the vote is, it's final and, and conclusive. I also think, by the way, you know, it's strange with these issues, The huge and overwhelming desire of the British people will be once this issue is decided, they don't, they're not going to be wanting to hear it again <laughs> for a long time. That's my bet. And anyone who pops up on either side and says, hey, I think what we should do is start another campaign, I think is going to meet with a pretty frosty response.
0: And supposing they pop up and say, let's have a Scottish independence referendum. I mean, isn't, isn't this one of the arguments, um, following, following this, this question, Bruce's question, about you know, it doesn't stop here, whatever, whatever happens in the next few months
1: it it, it all depends the degree to which there's public support for keeping it going what I'm saying is unlike the Scottish case because you've got a Scottish nationalist party that's actually in government in Scotland although by the way it's by no means clear that there is that enthusiasm really to have another referendum in Scotland Um, you know it's a different situation but in the end whether there's support for continuing the argument depends on the Uh, on the the state of public opinion what I'm saying to you is I think on this Brexit if there was an agreement by both sides that this is final I think people would accept it as final I certainly would from my perspective if the British people vote 51% to leave you know that's it as far as I'm concerned you're going to have to go through with it
0: Over there
1: Secretary of the FDA the Union for Senior Civil Servants and if your strategy is successful and uh, the government uh, uh, look for an election but don't get it, they've indicated they may wish to ignore the will of Parliament, it's Brexit, do or die. Can you envision a set of circumstances where civil servants will be faced with a conflict between serving the government of the day and serving the national interest if the government are ignoring the will of Parliament? Yeah. <laughs> so having been in government for 10 years, it would take a lot for me to say that <laughs> the civil service of the time should not perform its duty for the government. Um, look, I think if people are, are, are asked to do something that is genuinely you know, wrong or unlawful in some way, then that's another matter. But I, I think in the end... You know if the government if the government goes ahead with this and with no deal, you might disagree with it very strongly, and that's a matter of whether people want to stay in their position or not, but I think it's we've got to try and preserve as much of the institutions of government as we can, to be honest.
0: and so civil servants who felt that no deal was absolutely the wrong thing for the country should consider whether they stay or go, but you you would like them to stay as an independent civil well, service I, and try and deliver
1: this? I think that's up to them but I don't think you should say the civil service as a whole should stop serving the government or try to argue mm. that. I think that that's... Look, I know people. I actually came across someone the other day who's left government because they just can't agree with what's happening. and That's fair enough. I mean, the, people have got the freedom to do that. But I think, you know, one of the things when you've been in government is you're conscious the whole time of the need to try and keep the institutions of the country together um, and you know whatever happens in this brexit when there is a final outcome one way or another it's going to be incumbent on all of us to try and then bring find ways of bringing the country back together I mean I think that's the responsible thing to do um, and that's why I think it's also important this is decided in Parliament and not frankly by street protest and all the rest of it that's never going to work you know you've got to decide these things in 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 Parliament and if you know if Parliament can't can't find the numbers to stop the government doing what they're doing um, mm. you know then it'll it'll go forward'
0: I'm getting one more question I think there was one over here Great.
1: thanks uh, Kieran Walsh from the University of Manchester I'm interested in your views on, on on the role of the media the broadcast and press media in the brexit debate and whether you think it's been Business as usual. This is the media doing what they do. Whether actually you think uh, the way in which the media have behaved has really been fundamentally somewhat different. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I and I find it uh, difficult to answer because look, there's one part of the the media that is passionately pro Brexit has I think driven a lot of this agenda. Um, I don't personally believe that Boris Johnson would be in favour of Brexit if it wasn't for the strength of that. Uh, right-wing media feeling. Um, so they've played a big part. There's no doubt about that. They've created a, a, a mood. Um, do I think that, you know, the rest of the media, have, well, it's, it's, it's difficult. They're in an invidious position. If you take the BBC, they're criticized, frankly, from both sides of the line. Um, but I think it's worth afterwards sort of doing an analysis of this and seeing what lessons we can learn. But I think there's a much bigger question that for another day, but something that my, uh, my institute l- looks at, which is how in a world of social media interacting with conventional media do you get rational debates on anything? I mean, I think this is a huge problem for modern politics. I mean, I've struggled a lot with what's really driving this populism, and I think you can see certain objective factors, you know, stagnant incomes amongst a certain group of people, anxieties around immigration, you know, people left behind by globalization. But I think the big game changer is social media creates a completely different atmosphere in which to conduct politics. And I feel that most modern politicians uh, who believe in a kind of what I would call a more traditional form of professional politics, I think they're really at sea trying to deal with this. And they're not dealing with it at all well. And they're not realizing that in a social media age, You know, it's just, it's a completely different type of political activism that you require. But I think the implications for democracy are very, very big because what I can see happening around the Western world today is, you know, a real split, never mind political tribe, but a split into tribal differences, particularly over culture, that are really deep. And where neither side talks to each other much, engages with each other, trusts each other, likes each other or even regards the other as having a legitimate point of view. And that's pretty difficult. That's that's what is, that's where we're heading. And I think even though you can overdo the parallels with times before and the challenge to democracy, I think we're, we're going to have to debate in the Western world in these next few years what it means to have a democracy. And how just having the form of democracy is not enough. It, there's a spirit to, to democracy as well. There's a content to it. And that spirit and that content is being eroded.
0: On that note, I can't even <laughs> say sardonically so that uplifting note. Uh, on that note, we're going to have to end. Thank you for really interesting questions, uh, and indeed for coming this morning. And above all, uh, Tony Blair, thank you very much.